So if you've got your place there in John chapter 18, uh, we've probably all heard or experienced uh, either th- through the media or, or some other outlet where we know that someone has been wrongfully accused. We've seen that on the news, especially uh, as of late in the past few years where DNA has become so prevalent in determining uh, the, the outcome of a lot of cases. Uh, some of you might remember uh, seeing on the news the Peggy Hetrick murder that took place in Fort Collins back in 1987. And for a long time, it was an unsolved case. And then a gentleman by the name of Timothy Lee uh, Masters, Tim Masters, he was in high school, and he was being questioned in, in regards to that particular case. Well, anyway, he got out of high school. He enlisted in the Navy. He was in the Navy for eight years, honorably discharged. And um, then he got a job as an aviation mechanic in, for Learjet. But in 1997, he was arrested for the murder of Peggy Hetrick. He was charged and convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. But his sentence, as some of you may remember, was vacated in 2008 when DNA evidence from the original crime scene indicated that he was not the responsible party in that. He He was wrongfully accused. And I think that that's appropriate for us as we continue to look Uh, through chapter 18 and 19 in the situation that we have with Jesus, without a doubt, we would all agree that know that story. Jesus was wrongfully accused, wasn't he? What they were accusing him of just wasn't wasn't true. So last week, uh, we were looking at Jesus' arrest and the three illegal night trials that took place. And we also spent some time looking at Peter's denials. But starting in our text this morning, verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat of the Passover. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, uh, as always, uh, for the opportunity to study from your word. And Lord, it's my prayer this morning that the truth that you have for us, Lord, would be revealed in our hearts, that we might be able to apply it in our lives, that we might learn from it, that we might be able to share it with others. So, Father, bless our time this morning in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw that there were these trials going on, uh, three night trials. There was the trial with Annas, who was the power behind the high priestly office. He wasn't considered the high priest on paper, if you will, but certainly he was the one that was carrying out most of what was going on. And he had his son-in-law, Caiaphas, um, who was holding that office at that time. And um, so, uh, like our animations and just like with worship, you know, Brandon's the worship leader and he's doing the animations. I'm actually the power behind those things, okay, as as the (laughs) father-in-law. But we see uh, these trials that took place with Annas and Caiaphas. And then later on that night, as we know from the other Gospels, there was another trial that took place with the other religious leaders there as well, the the Sanhedrin. And so these three trials have have taken place, and now we're moving from those trials. It's starting to get daylight, and they're going to be moving to uh, take Jesus before Pilate, the governor. 
and they go to the praetorium. Now, what is the praetorium? Well, at first it sounds like a place where, an auditorium where you'd have prayer, doesn't it? The praetorium, which we could call this place the praetorium, right? Uh, very loose definition, obviously, of that. But it actually, over time, originally it may have been a tent uh, where the general of any army would reside. So you know that when they were out in battle, there would be this tent where the general would be, and certain issues could come before him uh, in, that, in that time. So uh, even though the battle might be raging, uh, people from uh, soldiers from that army or whatever, as well as local citizens or whatever, could be brought before the general who would uh, reside over any issues. And so that carried on, and we know, uh, if you've studied about Jerusalem at all, there was a place there by the Temple Mount called the Antonio Fortress. And there would be a gathering place there, and that is where uh, Jesus would be taken at this time, because while Pilate was in Jerusalem, he didn't live there year-round, he didn't even want to, but he was there at this time because of Passover taking place, and they wanted to make sure that they were in control of the situation so that there weren't any riots or uprisings or anything like this coming up during the Passover. So Pilate was there, the troops were there at this Antonio Fortress, and so Jesus was taken to that place so that he could be uh, interviewed, if you will, uh, by Pilate. So that's what's going on. And so they take him to the Praetorium. Now we have throughout our study of John known that these Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus, didn't they? They wanted to kill him. We know that from texts we've read. Uh, they made it very clear, it was very clear in the text, that they just wanted to kill him. However, since the start of Roman rule in this area, the Jewish council did not have the right to execute prisoners, so it was necessary to get the cooperation and approval of Rome. Not all the time just in certain cases and in certain death sentences that needed to be carried out did Rome step in because we know there were still stonings that took place weren't there we know that Stephen was stoned so uh, we're gonna see that as we move through the text that uh, it's God ordained that Jesus was going to die by crucifixion so they knew that because they wanted him to die by crucifixion, they weren't going to be able to carry that sentence out themselves. Rome was going to have to do that. So they had to have a visit then with the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. Now, the outcome of these three night trials that we looked at last week was that Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. And this was, according to Jewish law, it was worthy of, of death. So in order to have the death sentence carried out, they obviously had to appeal to a Roman court. It's interesting, though, that the Jews themselves would not go into the praetorium because they did not want to be defiled by walking on Gentile ground during the Passover because they would be what would be termed as ceremonially defiled during the seven days of the Passover by walking on Gentile ground, and they considered anything that had to do with Rome, uh, you know, Gentile ground, Gentile property, so they didn't want to have anything to do with that. 
So it's ironic, though, that the Jews, they didn't want to be defiled by walking on Gentile ground. However, yet at the same time, they're trying to kill Jesus. Kind of seems like a double standard of some sort going on here, right? So they obeyed the letter of the God's law while plotting the death of God's Son. Remember that. Write that down. Tuck it away. That they obeyed the letter of God's law while plotting the death of God's Son. It kind of sums up this whole scene that we're going to see during this uh, trial. So it's interesting that Pilate was in Jerusalem at this time because it's Passover. Since the city was filled with Jews traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was necessary for Rome to have a strong presence there to avoid any riots or squelch any outbursts by the Jews. Because that very thing had happened before under Pilate's watch, and he had been warned that it better not happen again. It was kind of like it happened a couple times. Rome was basically saying, this happens a third time, and you're out. So it was in Pilate's best interest to not mess this one up. So he would be looking for some loophole to please both sides of this controversy. And as we go through this, we're going to see that this trial shows Pilate to be indecisive and weak and compromising. Pilate wasn't really concerned about justice at all or, or the truth. He just wanted to protect himself and his position by protecting Rome. Roman leaders uh, worked hard and did a lot of conniving and positioning themselves to reach a certain stature in their society, and they didn't want to lose that. So he's trying to protect his position, trying to protect himself, and representing and protecting Rome in this process. And we're going to see he failed miserably in all three. And we know that Pilate was afraid of the crowd, and he was afraid of losing control of the crowd. But I think he also increasingly grew more wary of Jesus and the way that he presented himself. There, without a doubt, there's a struggle going on internally in Pilate through this whole process. You can see it in the text. It comes out. We see in Matthew's account that Pilate's wife even urged him have nothing to do with this man because of some dreams she's ha had uh, that were really troubling her. So in this Roman trial conducted by Pilate, we're going to see that it revolves around six key questions that come up in the text. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. One of them is directed to the Jewish leaders. Four of them are directed to Jesus himself. And one is directed to the crowd or to the multitude. And we see these questions asked. To the Jewish leaders in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? And then we see four asked to Jesus specifically. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 35, what have you done? Verse 37, are you a king then? And verse 38, what is truth? Pilate asking these questions to Jesus. And then the last one is a question asked to the crowd in verse 39. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Well, this morning we're going to look at the significance of these questions asked and the significance of the answers given. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Question number one to the Jews, to those religious leaders 
that had put him on trial before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. They bring him to Pilate at the Praetorium. Pilate comes out and says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now it's logical for Pilate to ask the, the question because he wants to know what the accusations are, right? And there are three official charges listed. Not here in John, but in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is uh, Christ, a king. So the accusations are, this man has perverted the nation, this man is not paying taxes, and he's claiming that he is the Christ and a king. What a load of bogus accusations here, right? The first two especially, perverting the nation. Jesus had not perverted or subverted the nation, neither politically or religiously, in any way. Yes, he had publicly denounced the Pharisees and their hypocritical religious system. We know that to be true, because it was true. But in fact, Jesus had blessed the nation and gave them new hope. We saw in John 6.15 that some had even wanted to take him and make him king, but he didn't pursue it himself, did he? He didn't want that. And then the second one, not paying taxes. Well, that's just ridiculous because one verse sums up that whole argument, right? In Matthew 22, the Pharisees were plotting, trying to entangle him in his talk, and they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus had the perfect response, right? He said, show me, show me the tax money. And whose image and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said in Matthew 22, 21, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Perfect answer, wasn't it? Shouldn't surprise us, it's Jesus, right? He always has the perfect answer, always did. But he certainly doesn't sound like he's a tax evader to me by that verse. He made it very clear. Render unto Caesar what Caesar, but also render unto God what is God's. And then that third accusation, claiming to be Christ and a king. Jesus was never shy about confirming that he is the Christ. And he will tell Pilate in a few verses that his kingdom is not of this world. So of the three accusations, this one's true. They got this one right. He did claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, because he was. They just didn't like it, did they? And he would be king, just not in the way that they thought. Remember, when speaking with the woman at the well, the woman asked or stated, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And what did Jesus say there? I am he. So he didn't leave it up to speculation whatsoever. He uh, boldly proclaimed that he was the Christ, the Messiah. In John 10, we see the religious leaders taking up stones to stone Jesus. In John 10, 32 and 33, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So we see time and time again that Jesus did claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, God. So in this accusation, they were correct. 
So now they have Jesus before Pilate, who cares very little whether Jesus is guilty or innocent. He just wants to prevent or avoid any kind of a riot. He doesn't care about the guilt or innocence of this man. He only cares for his position in life. That position is so true still today. So many people we know don't want to accept who Jesus is because they perceive it's going to cause change in their lives, right? I am where I am. I'm comfortable where I am. And what you're sharing with me, if I accept that, if I believe that, it's going to require change on my part, right? And for the most part, people just don't want to change. Now, we know, we've all experienced that, those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, <laughs> you accept the Lord, change is coming, isn't it? And I found, I don't know about you guys, that it's an ongoing change. You know, there's that initial change, but then there's this continual change in our lives as we, God molds us and makes us into what He wants us to be. His Holy Spirit convicts us of areas of our lives that need to change. And it's not like we're always, oh yeah, bring it on. I love change. We're not that way, are we? We just don't like change for the most part. But knowing that, any change that God brings about in our lives is for the good. All things work together for good. That those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, He is going to change us. If you're sitting here this morning going, I'm pretty content with where God has me. Look out. <laughs> change is coming, isn't it? Because He's always doing that work in our lives to draw us closer to Himself, to mold us and make us more into the image of Christ. So those changes are happening in us whether we like it or not, and even in spite of us, right? We can rebel and say, no, I am not changing, and He is going to change us anyway, isn't He? So we should just give in and accept it. But people back then, at that time, this whole new teaching uh, was different for them. You know, we're, we're quick to really judge the religious leaders of the day, but I think that we also need to realize that they thought they were doing what was right, didn't they? Now, granted, they, in some cases, they were ripping the people off and doing different things, you know, that they shouldn't. But for the most part, they felt like they were following the law of God, and that was a measure of their religiosity as well. And so it's real easy to criticize them, but I, th I think in order to balance that out in our own lives and even in our culture today, it's very easy to get legalistic, isn't it? about our religion. Um, you think about how Calvary Chapel really started to grow when Pastor Chuck reached out to all the hippies. And of course, those hippies, they didn't always dress like the other people, you know, that were already there. Um, how many recovering hippies do we have in here this morning, by the way? <laughs> I won't point you out, but you know who you are. <laughs> uh, and so it was a change for that congregation Pastor Chuck really felt like and Kay especially his wife really felt like man God is leading us to accept them in to this fold but it was a change and so they came in their hair was long they were dirty you know uh, 
they just came in as they were. And so over time, Calvary Chapel has kind of remained with that in that we like to say, man, that's what we're all about. You know, you just come as you are. We don't care. But yet we can become very legalistic when we look at some other denominational church down the street and go, man, why do they wear suit and ties? That's just crazy, you know? Yet that's where God has them, doesn't he? So even we, in our liberty, can be very legalistic, can't we? We, we? we can't. We have to accept the fact that we can be that way as well. So people become content with where they are. They don't want to change. They're happy as far as they know where they are. Jesus offers life, but they, they think they already have it. So verse 30, they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. They're trying to make their case before Pilate, aren't they? Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Pilate really didn't want to get involved in this Jewish court case, especially at Passover. He's going to want to evade this issue altogether if he can, if it's possible. If Jesus was causing problems for the Jews, then let the Jews try him under their own law. And we know that Rome had permitted the Jews to retain a certain amount of jurisdiction under their own law. Rome had permitted, especially when it related to their religious laws and customs. As I mentioned before, Stephen. Stephen was stoned. How were they able to do that? Because they were judging him by their law. They could judge someone as guilty and carry out the sentence of death by stoning them. However, we know that God had determined that Jesus was going to die by crucifixion. So Jesus himself also prophesied of his death by crucifixion. We've seen that throughout John, John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And John 12, 32 through 33, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. For Jesus to die by crucifixion, it was ordained by God that the Messiah, that Jesus would die on a cross. He would be lifted up. So even though stoning by law was an option for the Jews under the law, this wasn't going to be the death that Jesus would die. He will die on a cross not many hours from this very scene. So then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, question number two, are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting because in the accusations against Jesus, it is never said by the Jewish religious leaders that he would be king of the Jews. They just said he would claim to, he's claiming to be a king. In fact, their accusation of his claim to be a king was really stated more for Rome's benefit in that this man is challenging Caesar for the throne. Caesar is the only king. Caesar in that culture by Rome was considered deity himself. 
No one was going to challenge Caesar for the throne without being killed, were they? Even if it come down to his own family, they'd knock him off. He was not going to be taken uh, out of authority in that place. So for the Jews to bring Jesus there and say he claims to be a king, that should be a direct threat to Rome. They knew that. That's the reason they said it, that, hey, no better way to get him killed quicker than <laughs> to get him crossways with Rome here by claiming to be a king, right? Certainly Rome would respond to that. No one in his right mind would challenge Caesar for king. And that in and of itself, even rumored, would be worthy of death. That's what they wanted. Stir up Rome to carry out the sentence regardless of the charges. They just wanted him crucified. They wanted him dead out of the way. Now we'll see later that Pilate has a sign made up to be placed on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And of course, in the other Gospels, we see that those religious leaders didn't like that at all because they didn't see him as king of anything, especially king of the Jews. They asked him to take it down. Pilate said, no, I'm not going to take it down. What I've written, I've written, basically is what he said. So we see Pilate finally has some backbone here in that particular case, doesn't he? Jesus himself does not claim to be king of the Jews anywhere in Scripture. You're not going to find that. He does claim to be a king, but not of this world. So Pilate asks, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answers him in verse 34. Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus knows what's in, in the works here in the background, right? He knows some of the things that they're plotting and accusing of is just to, to uh, carry out their ploy. Of course, others told him part of the accusations. Pilate answered in verse 35, after Jesus said, Did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Question number three. What have you done? What did you do? Jesus, what did you do to get these guys so ticked off at you? What's going on here? Now, Pilate himself was always looking for a way to get back at the religious leaders. They were a thorn in his side. They were just a pain to him. He would rather be in Rome than there anyway. So he asked Jesus, basically, give me something here. What could you have possibly done to make these guys want to kill you? Jesus answers the question, what have you done, by answering the previous question. Are you the king of the Jews? In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus states that if his were a worldly kingdom, Pilate, you would have a bigger problem than you have right now because my people would riot and rebel so I would not be captured. Now you think, well, how many people does Jesus actually have in his camp in this particular case? Well, at first glance, you just think, well, it's the 11, well, the nine who were scattered. Peter and John are kind of hanging around. So if you look at it in that light, it doesn't seem like that many. But how many did he feed? 5,000? <laughs> 
And that's the men. And then after that scene, they want to take him and make him king. Jesus had a huge following. They all fall away, we know. It was ordained by God that that would happen. But had he wanted to cause a rebellion, he could have very easily, right? No one was happy with Rome. And in fact, the religious leaders, they believed that the Messiah was going to come and be a conquering king anyway, right? To take them out of the bondage of Rome. Jesus was, came on the scene to take them out of the bondage of sin, not Rome. But he could have. This is just like back in the garden. He could have called a legion of angels to come down and wipe everybody out. He could have, but that's not what the plan was, was it? He was going to carry out God's plan for salvation regardless. But that's not his kingdom. That type of kingdom on earth is not his kingdom. His kingdom is not from here, he's saying. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So question number four, Are you a king then? It, it seems as though Pilate may be a little bit confused, right? <laughs> In his questioning Jesus, he's not getting through to the answer that he's looking for. Maybe he doesn't feel like these accusations are being answered the way that he wants. Are you a king then? Answer me directly. Answer me this. Are you a king? And Jesus says what? You're right, Pilate. I am a king. Just not of this world. But it's interesting in this verse because Jesus goes on, goes on to say a couple of things worthy of attention for us. Jesus tes, says to Pilate, For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world. For this cause I was born, I was born speaks of humanity, doesn't it? We know that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was the God-man. I was born. We were all born. None of us were hatched. We were all born. It speaks of humanity, right? But he also says, I have come into this world, which speaks of his deity. He came as God into the world. So he was born as a man and came as God. So Pilate, listen up. I was born. I have come into this world. For what reason? To bear witness to the truth. That's why I'm here, Pilate, to proclaim the truth, the truth about God, the truth about myself. With the proper witnesses, if any of his followers would have been there to testify, they would have shared about the truth. There weren't any of them around, except for John, somewhere there. They were scattered, and the Jews wouldn't have allowed them to speak anyway, would they? They had this whole thing set up, these religious leaders. They weren't going to bring any witnesses to affirm who Jesus said he was. And then Pilate said to him in verse 38, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Question number five, what is truth? Now we could take that statement and probably spend six weeks <laughs> on what is truth, right? Uh, you may have heard me share uh, before. If I have, just bear with me. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
There was a movie back in the early 60s in which Elvis Presley plays, plays the part of a guy, he's looking for a job. And he walks into this reception area, the reception's uh, sitting there, and he said, well, you want to tell Mr. Smith that I'm here? Well, who are you? You know, what are you here for? He tells him his name. And he said, just tell him I'm here with the truth. She's like, he's not going to see you. He's, just tell him I'm here with the truth. He'll see me. So she brings on the intercom, hey, so-and-so's here. He says he's here with the truth. He's here with the truth? Yes. Well, send him in. So he goes into the office, have a seat. So what is the truth? Truth is, I need a job. <laughs> he winds up getting a job. Elvis could work that way, right? But what is truth? It's a question that probably all of us have asked at any point in time in our lives. Certainly when it came to matters about God, about Jesus, what is the truth? But it's interesting, as you look at this text not trying to read anything else into the text, just what the text has to say, it's apparent in the text that Pilate doesn't even give Jesus the opportunity to answer that one, does he? What does the text say? It says, and when, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So it's almost, you can see the scene, he just goes, ah, what is truth? And just walks out. He's not interested in the truth that this man has to share. It's ironic, actually, when you think about it, with the embodiment of all truth standing right in front of him, he asks the question, what's truth? Ah. So Pilate had the opportunity to hear of this truth, but he ignored it. He goes out and tells the Jews... I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in Jesus. Basically, he's saying what? Not guilty. I find no fault in him. Now, it's somewhere in this scene about this time that we pick up another trial or an interview with Jesus by Herod. This is documented for us in Luke's Gospel. Somewhere in the conversation, it comes up that Jesus was from Galilee. And so Herod, that's his jurisdiction, so Pilate says, oh, this is easy. The guy's from Galilee. I'll send him over to Herod. So he sends him to Herod. It says in the text in, in, uh, in Luke that Herod was exceedingly glad to see Jesus, for he had heard about him and that he wanted to see a miracle. But we have in that text for us that Herod asked a lot of questions and Jesus didn't answer any of them. He didn't, he didn't say a word. So because of that, Herod sends him back to Pilate. So here we have the three-day trials, if you will. He's before Pilate, he's sent to Herod, and now he's back on Pilate's doorstep. Pilate again said to the people, I find no fault in him at all concerning your accusations. However, verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Question six. Do you want me to release Jesus? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Mark's gospel states that Pilate knew that the chief priest handed over Jesus because of envy. It also says that the chief priest 
stirred up the crowd so that Pilate would instead release Barabbas to them. You've seen that in crowds, haven't you? Crowds can get all riled up if someone's just yelling loud enough. Seems like all of a sudden the whole crowd kind of goes over to that side. You know, they start believing what was said, like someone yelling fire in a theater. You know, that always, but just gets people's attention, doesn't it? Everybody's like, well, yeah, fire, you know, and everybody's out. But we've seen it in crowds before. You can get crowds riled up. If you've ever been to a football game or any sports uh, activity, it's real easy to start a cheer or a chant of some sort, and before you know it, it's going on, isn't it? It's really embarrassing when it doesn't happen. You stand up and you say that and nobody joins in. Never had that happen to me, of course, but I've heard, you know, that it's really embarrassing. But the crowd is stirred up. The religious leaders stir them up meaning that they themselves and other chosen ones, they disperse throughout the crowd, start chanting this, start saying this. Uh, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Uh, they may have to even explain why they want Barabbas instead of Jesus, just real quickly, but they get the crowd fired up, don't they? So that the crowd is on the side of Barabbas here. The crowd responds, verse 40, then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, it says in verse 40. As I read that verse this week, obviously everything that I'd heard before, you know, taught on this, stood out. You know, yeah, they released Barabbas. But that last little statement, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a thief. It was proven, it was known, Barabbas was guilty. But on this particular day, the wrongfully accused gets called out by the crowd and Barabbas is let go. Why? Why would that happen? Why would that take place? Again, it's all according to God's plan, isn't it? All according to God's plan. It's interesting that it worked out real well for Pilate in that regard, didn't he? Wait a minute. That's right. They've got this whole thing that we can release a prisoner at Passover. This is what we can do. I can just give him a choice, and then my hands are clean, right? Literally, because we know later he does wash his hands of the whole situation. So he thinks. But the crowd yells out, release Barabbas. And we know, and we're going to see as we go through our text, that's exactly what happened. And we know that it's totally unfair. We recognize that. We recognize it's an abomination of the, any justice system, isn't it? Wrongfully accused. No evidence. Still the sentence is carried out. But for us, for us here today, as we've gathered here, as we look at this text, a lot of questions are being asked. A lot of answers are being given by Jesus. All of it. The whole scene. Everything that's taking place. Right down to the minute detail of everything that's going on. It's all ordained by God. We talked a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus in the garden. Who was in control. And we determined God's in control, isn't he? He is the one that's in control of the whole situation. 
And as we look at it on this side of the cross, as we look back, really what we need to be saying is what? Praise God. God was in control because we'd have no hope otherwise, right? This all had to happen. We could spend weeks and weeks on how unfair this is, how Jesus was severely punished. We'll look at some of that. But bottom line in all of this is it needed to happen for us to have any chance to be reconciled to the Father. All of it is ordained by God for us. Amen?